1940, uh, the brothers Maurice and Richard McDonald opened the first McDonald's restaurant in San Bernardino, California. And uh, it wasn't like what we know today. It was a drive-in restaurant, and they offered tons of different uh, food. But in 1948, they kind of revamped things, and McDonald's, as we kind of know it, opened. And so they offered a simple menu, but they, they sold tons of different um, kind of familiar foods that, that was at a discount price, and they experienced success. There was so much success that actually they began kind of franchising locally. Now, if you saw the 2016 movie, The Founder, you know that a guy named Ray Kroc was traveling through in 1954, and he was selling milkshake mixers, and he saw what was taking place there and how they, they kind of streamlined everything, and he was going, no, this could be so much bigger, and so he helped them actually take this uh, globally. So uh, after kind of Ray Kroc's involvement, what you saw was that it just kind of started to explode. At one point, there was a McDonald's opening somewhere in the world every 14.5 hours. That there's over 37,000 McDonald's locations globally in 120 different locations. Now, what's kind of amazing about this is that something that started so small and so humbly could have such a global presence. Like, I read the stat that said 68 million people are served at a McDonald's every day. Now, this kind of got me thinking about how Jesus' ministry, if you study it, you see that it began pretty small, pretty humbly. Like, Jesus' earthly ministry took place, all of it, within a 100-mile radius of the place he was born, Bethlehem. And uh, if you were to kind of look at the Holy Land where he did most of this, that would fit into half the square mileage of Nova Scotia. Jesus begins with this small group of followers, and they're kind of not, not a group that most people would pick. Um, and, and he has these visions. If you look in Acts chapter 1, Luke's account of the Great Commission, Jesus has these visions that it's going to be a global, um, a global thing. It's going to reach the ends of the earth. And he wants the good news of his life and teachings to be taken by these disciples to every part of the world. And so Acts chapter 1 starting in verse 4. It says, While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, You have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Jesus' vision is not that people would come to Jerusalem to hear the gospel, but that his disciples would go out into the entire world taking the gospel to the world. Now, Christianity has done a pretty good job of it. Like, think about this. You're, you're sitting in Halifax, Nova Scotia, or somewhere, hearing the gospel right now. And so we know that there's evidence that the church kind of carried out what Jesus called them to do. Now, as the gospel got further and further away from Jerusalem, what would happen is that there would be congregations formed by these disciples that were being made. And as the congregations were further and further away from Jerusalem, it would be harder and harder for kind of the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem to exercise authority and leadership over all of these congregations. 
Now, communication, not what it is today. Like, you couldn't stream things on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, you couldn't just do a Zoom conference. You couldn't just kind of send out an email blast. We, you couldn't go like, okay, you want to know our beliefs? Go check our website, and you'll find them there. Like, we have to understand that Scripture itself, like chunks of the New Testament, were still being written at this time. So imagine um, you're, you're a group of disciples. You formed a new church, but you have a question about Christian living that, that you need resolved. And, and one of those questions, like maybe one that we saw in the New Testament was this, is like um, meat that's been sacrificed to idols and sold in the marketplace. Are we Christians allowed to eat it? And, and so you would have people on kind of both sides of the issues and they're going, I don't know, who, who resolves this for us? And so if they had to go and ask the people in Jerusalem about everything, it would, it would kind of be like this. They write a letter, they ask their question, and they put it in the mail, but the mail system was not like what we know it to be right now. Uh, the mail system in Rome at this time was like, if it was Roman government business only. And so like, if you wanted to send a letter, it was like, okay, are you traveling that way? Can you take this letter and, and make sure it gets to these people? And so it could take weeks, it could take months to arrive. And so you write your letter, eventually it gets to the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem. But I mean, if they're having to do this for every church, there's probably a bit of a backlog. And so eventually they get to it. Maybe it sits in a pile for a little t- bit of time as they deal with the other issues. And then they get to yours, they debate it, they mull it over, they write a response, and then they have to stick that back in the mail, which again is probably some guy carrying it going that direction, and it could be quite a while before you received an answer. And so my point is, is this, is like that would not be an overly effective system for handling matters in the church. For, for a congregation, it would kind of stunt the growth of that church as they have to wait for it. Now, God knows with a dispersed church, every, every congregation needs local leadership. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And the Apostle Paul writes, And he himself, so God gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and teachers. Now, the, the, the primary form of uh, leadership kind of at the local church level that Paul lists here are the pastors and teachers. Now, when you're reading your Bible, you might see sometimes it says pastors, it might say elders, it might see overseers, and we would see them as, as different things. But in reality, all three are kind of essentially the same office. They carry out the same functions when you examine it. And what, what's happened over time is that we kind of change the meaning or the, how we understand some of those words. But they all meant the same thing. It was just kind of depending on who you were writing to, the context, whether it was Jewish or a Gentile context. Now, if you were to ask most people what what pastors do, um, there's always those who go like they work an hour uh, for for Sunday morning and then they golf the rest of the week and think they're pretty clever. It it would be nice if that were true, but... uh, that's, that's, that's our lead pastor's uh, dream, but I don't think it, it does, that's far from reality. But here's the thing, like uh, my experience in doing this for a while, people will often kind of come to, to, to us and they'll say, okay, I heard about this cool program that this church is doing. We should do it. Or at my old church, we did this. Or um, I, this, this, this opportunity is coming and, and I think we should really be involved. And kind of what's being said in that is like, can you make it happen? Or can you essentially do it? And, and somewhere along the way, an idea made its way into the church that, that pastors or ministers are paid professionals who do the work of 
the church. Now, what I want us to understand is when there's biblical titles, they come with biblical job descriptions. And so here's what God intends for pastors and elders to do. So back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. From him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. And so what Paul is getting at, essentially, if you're to kind of boil it down to what he says, is like the role of pastors, elders, is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So based off of scripture, the primary responsibilities for, for pastors and elders is to shepherd, protect, and disciple our members, to pray for our members, for the initiatives of the church, and for the missionaries that, that we help to send out into the world with the gospel, to provide guidance to ministry leaders and those who are serving in those ministries, to support HCC efforts and initiatives through involvement where possible, and to provide leadership and disciple-making training. Now, what, what Paul, again, essentially saying is it's, it's the job of the pastors, the elders, the overseers to, to make it possible for the church's members to perform their individual services as the body of Christ. Now, congregations, I just want to talk about this for a second. Congregations that hire paid professionals to do all of the work of ministry will face three consequences and maybe more. But one is often this, is that the paid professionals will quickly uh, be, be worn out or burnt out. Like just a few people can't carry all the load of a growing church. And I've seen some guys try, but what often happens is they either sacrifice their family on the altar of ministry or they're burnt out um, mentally, physically, spiritually. Another thing is the congregation is almost guaranteed not to grow past a certain point because it will remain as small and mature as the time, the energy, and the abilities of those who are being paid. And that, that one thing alone explains why a lot of churches kind of reach a certain point and then they just stop growing. They, they stay as they are for years because they're kind of limited by the abilities of the paid professional. And finally, the growth of the members of the church will be stunted. They'll never grow up to assume their scriptural responsibilities. Now, in nature, if you look, like healthy things, they grow. Um, they produce offspring and fruit. And, and if you read scripture, you should get this idea that the church is meant to be growing and it's meant to be producing um, fruit. We are to be making disciples. And God, in his grace, he uses all kinds of people from many different places, from many different backgrounds to accomplish this purpose. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
And so what Peter's saying is like, if you are a, a member of God's household, if you are a Christian, you are a member of the priesthood, when God looks at you, he sees his child, but he also sees a minister of the gospel. And as disciples, we're, we're to view our lives as, as a ministry and live in such a way that's going to help more people come to know who Jesus is and to accept him as Lord and Savior. And so what we see is this. The church can only be all that it is intended to be when every disciple is doing their work of ministry. Like what it comes down to is this. The amount of people being saved and the, uh, the maturity of the congregation is determined in many ways by how many of our members are engaged in ministry. Now, the, the mission of the church is to save lives, um, but, but this is something that kind of gets forgotten about, and I've talked about this before, as churches more try to like um, attract people and entertain them and, and get them to stick around, and, and those things, they do have their place, but I, I've talked about this before, that the church is, it should look more like a battleship than it does a cruise ship. That, that if you look at a battleship, every person on that ship has a role to play. They, they've got a function. And if, if they're, they're there, they're often training other people to be able to do that function. You, you're not going to find somebody on a battleship who's like, well, what are you doing here? And they're like, I just came along for the sights. I'm just seeing the, seeing the scenes, but that they don't have a role to play. What you get in, in Scripture is that every Christian has a role to play in the church, that we're in a battle for eternities and that it's all hands on deck. Now, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, it tells us that every Christian is to grow up, is to mature. And so no Christian really has an excuse for not growing in spiritual maturity. And one of the things that we see is that ministry and serving others is a sign of spiritual maturity. That, that if we consider ourselves to be spiritually mature, we better find ourselves somewhere in the church serving others, helping to make Jesus known somewhere. Now again, I, I've been doing this for a while, so I, I know kind of, I've, I've had to recruit for ministries, and I know the responses that we'll often give to a challenge like this. The first one is this, I don't have time. And what this really means is, is one of two things, is like, it's not a priority, or I, I just don't really want to. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what Je Jesus is getting at here is that we will put our money, our time, our energy, our resources into the things that are most important to us. And so if, if none of that is going towards serving and ministry, it, it's just kind of safe to assume that it's not much of a priority to us. Now, what Jesus teaches here is beautiful because what he's saying is you can actually direct your affections. You can direct where your heart is by placing your, your energy, your, your will, or sorry, your money, um, your, your gifts, everything that you have to where you want it to be. You can direct that affection and so what this might mean is that, that we have to prune some things out of our lives to make time for doing ministry. Now, I think we, we all have time for it because social media is one of those, those proofs. Like the amount of people who are posting verbal scores right now is kind of crazy, but uh, I think we can all find the time. Now, another thing we, we might say is this, I'm not meant for ministry. 
And we, we tell ourselves, I'm not good enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not holy enough. I don't have enough. Um, I, I don't know enough to be used by God. So we, we tend to minimize our personal importance and we divert scriptural challenges as something that is meant for every other Christian, not us. And we see ourselves as unimportant in God's plans. And so we kind of just leave the work of ministry up to other people to do. But, but the question should not be, how do we see ourselves? But what does God see in us? And what does God ask of us? In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says this, and we, we read this earlier, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses. And I want us to notice the sequence of events there. That, that first, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will come upon us and we'll receive power through that and then we will be his witnesses. A while back, I was installing a garage door opener um, in our home because we had an older one that had no safety sensors. So if like we hit the shut button and the kids started to run out of the garage, it might just take them out. So uh, we decided we better replace that. And so I was doing this and I got to a step in the instructions where it said two people required for this step. And I was home alone. Uh, Shannon was at work and the, the kids were away. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'm not waiting for her to get home. And so I built a tower out of boxes and a garbage can. And it was, it was a little iffy. It was a little risky at some points, but eventually I, I kind of got it done. Now, here's the thing. It w- they were right. It would have been so much easier if I had a second person. And, and here's the thing. Like God knows that we need help when we go about witnessing, when he calls us to to share the gospel and make Jesus known. In Luke chapter 24, verses 48 and 49, Jesus says, you are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. And so here it's almost as if Jesus is saying to his disciples, like, please do not try and witness without Holy Spirit help. Like, it's going to be so much easier if, if you do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you try to do it without the Holy Spirit's help, you're probably going to make a mess of things. Now, the Holy Spirit, it's not just something that is reserved for elite Christians. In Luke chapter 12, verses 11, and, uh, or sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse uh, 7, it says, that a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. And so the Holy Spirit is a gift given to every Christian upon conversion. In Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, Jesus says this, Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. And so... One of the things that we see Jesus gives the Holy Spirit for is, is this as a counselor. That, that, that we shouldn't pre-script the conversations that we're going to have as we go and witness, but that Jesus promises that he's going to give us the words that we need when we need them. And so the Holy Spirit is there as a counselor for us as we go about our days, but he does more than that. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, Peter writes, Just as each one of you has received a gift... Use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. And so every believer has received at least one spiritual gift from God to build up the body of Christ, to serve. 
And so we have to understand this gift that he's given us is the power to do something. It's, it's not just power to possess. It's not just power to enjoy, but it's, it's a gift that's used to help grow the church, to help make Jesus known in the world. Now, spiritual gifts, they can be a contentious issue um, in the church. I, I recognize this. And some people would look at the gifts listed in the, in the New Testament, and they would go, okay, all of those gifts are active in the church today. And then there's others who would say, no, some of those were, were foundational gifts. That, that as the church was being established, as scripture was kind of being written out, those gifts were necessary at that time to make that possible. But now that the church is established and, and we kind of have scripture, we, we know how it works, those gifts are no longer present. And then you have everyone in between. And I, I mean, we don't have a lot of time to kind of go into that this morning, but I just want to say this. Um, scriptural gifts are a secondary um, non-salvation issue. And so we can discuss them, we can debate them, we can disagree about them, but we never divide the church over them. Because what the, the point of the Spirit, one of the things the Spirit does is he, he unifies us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11, it says, One and the same Spirit is active in all these, all these gifts distributing to each person as he wills. And so what Paul's getting at is this. God in his sovereign knowledge has given certain gifts to certain people for his purposes. But what I need us to take away from this morning, if you get one thing, it's this. Every Christian has been given a spiritual gift for the purpose of making and maturing disciples, to, to make Jesus known in the world. Now, this is good news because for every Christian, what God wants to do is he can and he wants to make a difference with your life, a lasting difference. And some of us know what our gifts are. Maybe it's the gift of teaching. Maybe it's the gift of mercy, hospitality, giving, discernment, wisdom, service, and, and on we can go. And often what these gifts are is something that is totally new to us that wasn't necessarily there before we came to know Jesus. Like I know so many preachers who could not get in front of a crowd before they were saved, before they became a Christian and God gave, him, gave them uh, his spirit. Another thing is this, that God doesn't intend for anyone to do all of it. No person has every spiritual gift. The only one who, who most likely had it was Jesus. And last time I checked, none of us are him. And so we need one another. We rely upon one another. And my experience as a disciple has been one of different people at different times um, investing in me, ministering to me, discipling me to bring me to the point I'm at today. And that, that's going to continue uh, for the rest of my life. Now, Another thing is this. It means that there are things that you are meant to do, and then there's things that you probably shouldn't do. Like God has, has gifted you. He's, he's intended you to do certain things and to do them well. Like for some people, hospitality just comes naturally to them. And, and it's, it's more than just like um, putting out a good meal and being Joanna Gaines. It's like inviting people into your life and, and being the stra inviting the stranger in, but then that same person, when it comes to teaching, if they sit down to teach, the people are like, I think I know less than when I sat down at first. Like, the people are more confused. And so that person might have the gift of hospitality, but not necessarily, necessarily the gift of teaching. And so it's like, in a life group, they, they should be the host and not necessarily leading the discussion. 
But, but here's the thing. Our gifts help us to know what we should and shouldn't be doing. Now, another thing is this, that spiritual gifts help free us from the shame that might come through comparison. Like God has gifted our lead pastor, Greg, with the gift of evangelism. Um, he was messaging with me earlier this week about some stuff, and, and he said, I was trading some hockey cards with a father and a son, and, and they're going to come to church. And it's like, you, you knew them for five minutes, and like they're, they're already coming to church. And that, I, I think that's a gift that, that God has given to Greg. But, but here's the thing. When Greg is successful there, it's God who gets the glory, not Greg. Because God is the one who gave Greg the gift of evangelism. And God has gifted you and I in different ways, but in every way, God gets the glory from it in that whatever we do. And, and here's the beautiful thing is that our success is not measured by how we uh, stack up against another person and their spiritual gifts. Our faithfulness is measured by this, how faithful we are in using our time, our talents, our treasures, our gifts to bring glory to God, to help others know him as Lord and Savior. Now, I've thought a lot about what what the church would look like um, if this pandemic took place even about 10 years ago. Like, I was going, what what would it look like? Because technology... um, it wasn't where it's at even now. The cost of technology even 10 years ago would have been pretty prohibitive. And thankfully, it's taking place here. And I'm thankful for technology. I believe that it's a gift. And like, thankfully, we've been able to do this for the past two years. And I do want to take a moment to acknowledge like, those who you'll never see on the screen that are here week in and week out helping to make this possible. They're behind cameras, they're behind computers, and um, just different pieces of equipment. And God has grown our church over this time through their help and through the, 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 like the dedication of our worship ministry and those who are making this possible. And by ex- exercising their talents and their gifts, they're helping to make disciples, even though you never see most of them on the screen. Like I was thinking, could, could you imagine if it was up to Greg and I to try and pull off one of these services? Like not, not to pick on the guy too much, but I'm still trying to teach him how to use his iPhone at times. But here's the thing, in all honesty, one of my concerns coming out of this pandemic and the convenience of these online services is this, is that habits will have been formed. And that I'm a bit concerned that, that church will be reduced to something that feels a lot like Netflix for some of us. That will sit in front of a screen for an hour on, on a Sunday morning and go, okay, I've done church. But if the weather is nice, you know what? I'll just do church later on when it's a bit more convenient. Like we can stream it on demand. And again, I, I, I understand the situation that, that we're in this time of of a pandemic, and again, I'm thankful for technology, but I don't think this decision to kind of start thinking about church this way happens necessarily consciously, but we kind of slip into it. But, but here's the thing. The church was never meant to be a group of spectators who attend a weekly lecture. It's designed to be a trained, equipped, gifted army with a powerful message. It's a message of hope that, that, that every person is known, they're valued, they're loved by Jesus, and that he went to the cross to forgive them of their sins, and there's hope because the grave is empty. 
And it's hard for us to serve from the sofa. It's hard to have community from the couch. And Christians, we're not consumers, we're contributors. We don't watch, we engage. We give more than we take. We sacrifice, we encourage, we pray for one another. We do life together. And God has given you your gifts combined with all your experiences to do the work of ministry in this time. And God wants to do something through your life. That your skills, your energy, your relationships, they're all there for a purpose. And so your spiritual gifts are what God knows that our church needs in order to accomplish the mission that he has given us. And please understand, ministry isn't simply about getting things done. Ministry is about seeing lives changed for eternity. And our world desperately needs the church to be everything that the church is meant to be in this time. And so as the pandemic, I really hope that we're seeing the end of this. But as this pandemic winds down and and we kind of come back to the new normal, there's going to be many different opportunities within our congregation Uh, to serve. There's going to be opportunities in the community to serve as the hands and the feet of Jesus. And I want to encourage you to to do this as, as things get going again, because one of our values is this, that we are gifted to serve. And so I want to encourage you to go on our, our website. And up at the top, you'll see a tab up there that says connect. And if you, if you kind of hover over that down below, you'll see something that says serve. And you can fill out a serve card there. And there's just a list of the different opportunities within our congregation to be able to serve. But if you don't know how God has gifted you, I'd offer you the following. To be rooted in your faith to allow yourself time to identify your spiritual gifts because just like your natural talents kind of take time to, to, to manifest themselves and that you would see them as you, as you do different things over time and you grow and mature, that in many ways is the same thing as spiritual gifts. So be patient. But I would encourage you as you're trying to discover them to be available for various serving opportunities because that can provide clarity to you and to others about what you're gifted to do and maybe what you're not gifted to do. Another thing would be this, to ask other believers who care for you and desire to see you grow in Christ for their honest opinion about how they see you serving in the body of Christ. And last week, um, Peter Boyer, he talked about how we're kind of rolling out some initiatives and just different things to help us uh, step up our game as disciples. And, and one of the things that we hope to be able to do is to provide some things in the future that are going to help you understand how God has shaped you and prepared you and called you for ministry. But as Ephesians chapter 4 says, when each part of the body is doing its part, the body will grow and it's going to mature. And so here's the beautiful thing is that our best days can still be ahead of us if we all do our part 